Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. I'm Nico. And I'm Jonah. And today on X's for Podcast, the team, or should I say teams, took a deep look at the most recent Marauders two-parter, 14 and 15, that represented two of the biggest changing points in the Ten of Swords ongoing narrative. And, you know, Jonah, it feels like Ten of Swords was announced a million years ago, and it's it's finally here, and there's 22 parts. That's more than Secret Wars, which was only 12. That's more than Empire that didn't reach, I don't think, reach the double digits. So it is a very long crossover. We're in, we are in it for the long haul. Yeehaw! In this next segment, you're going to hear Jonah, myself, along with Maddie and Evelyn, two of our regular contributors, talking a little bit about how the pace has slowed down quite a bit, but that does leave room for more throwbacks and tiebacks to the recent material. Of course, there's also a little bit of room to talk about Shania Twain, The Price is Right, and a movie we make up that belongs in the 1990s called I Love You So Sue Me. I think I will. Uh, well, I... Uh, <laughs> Fine, I'm going to counter Sue. While we're getting those lawsuits going, everybody check out this segment. Hey everybody, and welcome back to This Is X. I'm Nico, and you can find me at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hey, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at comic underscore canary. Hey guys, it's Maddie, and you can find me on Instagram at at the basically covetous man. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. And we hope you survive this experience. Unlike Betsy, who's now singing some Ashley Simpson. Pieces, pieces, pieces of me. I was not sure how you were going to bring that home, yeah. That is so funny. So hey everybody, today we're going to be taking a look at Marauders number 14 and 15, written by Jerry Dugan and Ben Percy, with art by Stefano Caselli on both. And this was uh, dinner party. Uh, <laughs> this was, you know, this was a huge shock for me because I we felt so much like there was so much decompression going on leading into this, and then we start this whole thing with a menu. I mean, I enjoyed it. I I thought it was a good way to like reintroduce the characters for people who haven't been reading like the other X books, as well as introducing the personalities of. The other people, the Iraq. You know, I have I have pretty mixed feelings about this. I think that the dinner party was set up very well. I think it's a lovely introduction to the Iraqi. I think there's a lot that I love early on. Uh, Magic and Iska both not spilling a drop in the glass. You know, Pogger Pog's introduction. Uh, I appreciated the menu. I loved Storm and Death dancing. But for me, it just runs a little long. A lot of it is regurgitated. One of the things that threw me off about this menu right away is so many of the contents of the menu are specifically like gross and visceral. This isn't just a situation where they're eating roast magical pheasant or something. 
they're very specifically eating foods like ghost fig, dry-aged in devil winds, and the last, each bite is the last of its kind for one of the courses, and a horned beast served whole, and it just, there's so much about this that is so specifically death and severity, and it starts off right away with the menu, like, I mean, right out of the gate. The menu primes us for what's going to be an absolute uh, bloodbath, but, like, I was thrown by how Neil Simon the introductions were. This opening bit where it's everybody at this bar. And it's just sort of like a magical fun time. Jonah, we've talked a little bit about how the action moved at some uneven paces. And now that we're here at Marauders, I gotta know, how do you feel about the fact that we spent like 20 pages just hanging out at a bar? Um, well, I think the star of this this issue was Ileana, whether it's her interaction with Pog, her interaction with Iska. She's, you know, the rising star and everybody's, she's a star and everybody else is just catching up to learning about that. But there were this action to me of what the really like meat and potatoes of this issue felt weird. Like you kind of already went through the calm before the storm of having everybody line up at this magic circle to be teleported to other world. After they collected their swords, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. But I don't understand another slowdown moment. I think it makes for some great comedic timing. And there's a lot of fun scenes, a lot of interesting character stuff. But you have a lot of characters that you're trying to give a voice to, whether small or large. So while I somewhat enjoyed what was going on, I don't quite understand if this was necessary you spent a lot of time on setup already, and if you wanted to do this, if like the dinner party was a non-negotiable scene that had to happen within this story, uh, I think there are other things that could have been sped up to get us to it. Well, I actually think I have reasons for this slowdown, and they're a little bit out there, but follow me for a second. Their whole not-a-drop-spilled thing, by the way, I could just have an entire book of Iska, Gorgon, and Magic running around together. That would just be like the best title ever right? That would be like the book, right? But there's a focus here on the quality of skill and not the sanctity of preservation. This isn't about making sure that not a drop is spilled. This is about parlor tricks. Menu is nearly entirely smacking of death and negativity with a focus on ending lives. The not wine spilled isn't indicative of preservation, but indicative of sport. So this ties back actually into the hunting mutants arc of Excalibur. This idea that Frankly, the mutants are just kind of sitting ducks, and this is a game, and the mutants actually are the game. And in a lot of ways, I felt like Marauders 1415 and some of the material that followed served to take our biggest, best, baddest bastards and bitch kind and the strongest of the mutants dumb that are always like, I'm going to kill you for fun, right? Like, it took all of them and made them look like chumps, like, right away. Our mutants are fucking big dicked down by these party games, by these tricks. But like the Iraqi mutants are unfucking phased by anything the Krakoans have to offer. And in that regard, it feels so much like there was an emphasis put on creating a context by where our characters didn't stand a fucking chance. 
Yeah, I, I think, I think <laughs> again, knowing what's to come, but just out of the pages of Marauders 14 and 15, yeah, the Kirkoans are shown to be at a great disadvantage. Maddie, it is to your credit, too, that you said that, you know, you felt like this overly slowed down. I feel like Marauders 14 and 15 sort of serve an interesting purpose. Now, Marauders 13 had a pinch hit by Vita. Marauders 14 and 15 feature an assist by Benjamin Percy. And I think it makes sense because Vita came on and they showed a side of Storm that is not frequently depicted because so frequently Storm is written by notably white men. And it is important to have diversity and voices of color covering these characters, especially when these characters are so intrinsically a part of the social narrative of the perspective of a minority or, you know, looking for inclusion and diversity. So then we get here and I'm kind of like, why the fuck did this need Ben Percy? Like what needed Ben Percy here? And I can't help but realize Wolverine's narrative through this whole goddamn thing, like Wolverine is, even I'm kind of like, Wolverine is obnoxiously pervasive in this crossover. And usually I'm the guy who's like, Logan me up, Logan, Logan, Logan. But this is like actual adamantium ad nauseum. I truly do not think Logan is this stupid. Like I, I like Logan's hot headed. Yeah, this is Logan's fucking an ridiculous. Asshole, but Logan's been around for a very long time and has seen many, 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 many different things. Logan knows better. Logan knows better to mess with things that he really has no control over. Logan knows not to mess with things that are much and beings that are much more powerful than him, like Opaluna Saturnine. So I don't understand this characterization that Wolverine literally cannot control himself. Like. I get it. He's an animalistic person, and he loves his vices, but this is a little too far across the line that it's bordering on, this is not how Wolverine would act. You know, and I, I think it's it's a little bit unconscionable, the actual act, because what is the end game? So you've killed Opaluna Saturnine, that don't impress me much, um, but I, I think that... I said I want to break your stride, but I definitely wanted to jump in there with some kind of any mutant of mine better walk the line. I definitely, I love you. No, that's yeah, perfect. no, I mean, Okara is still the one. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I concede. Um, but the, the, the. Looks like we made it. <laughs> so the acting question, killing Opaluta Saturnine, what is the end game of that? Okay, so the tournament doesn't exist. Now you still have to stave off the Iraqi and the Amenthi horde. You know what I mean? This is a way to to circumnavigate having to face them head on. And Wolverine sees immediately following in the in the opening of Marauders 15, the big old fake out, he sees that everybody dies. Everybody, you know, it is it is completely as one-sided as we've been set up to believe the tournament will be. That Krakoa and Earth will be no more. And I feel like it is that unfair across the board for the Krakoans in a lot of ways, because when we take a look at the Mad Jaspers page, Mad Jaspers predicts that even if the Krakoans survive, which he does not think that they will do, he specifically says he thinks that there's going to be planetary-sized repercussions due to this small island populace. And 
when I think about this small island populace, I think about how big a scale this small island is playing on. And to bring it back a moment to New Mutants number 13, I can't help but see the ways in which all of this material has been very well seeded throughout the last couple of months, and we maybe didn't realize it. Now, I'll admit, there was something a little bit assistant editor's week about this last week that came out, Marauders 15, and the following two titles, Excalibur 14 and Wolverine 7. They all had a sense of humor that sort of rubbed me the wrong way in initial reading. Now, I haven't exactly changed my tune, but even if I don't love what they're executing, I can see the effort being put in. And I think that Storm's exchange with death in the pages of Marauders 14 is inheriting a great multitude of who Aurora is bequeathed by New Mutants 13's kindness. New Mutants 13 showed this deft exploration of who Storm could be and the many facets of who she is and how that's played out across her life. In the pages of Marauders 14, she defiantly says, I have danced with you my whole life. I've been this, I've been that, I've been this, I've been that. And if you just read New Mutants 13, X number of chapters ago in the story, that doesn't feel like a hollow statement. That feels like a very specific call out to the things we just saw Storm reaccomplish in her own way. I think there's something really important about the way that creates a contrast between all of these titles and how their threads come together. You know, I can see this idea of mutants being hunted because they're just game, and this kind of does feel in many ways like that Excalibur arc with hunting mutants and um, uh, fuckboy Bloodstone. Cullen. Cullen. Cullen, Cullen fuckboy Bloodstone. That's his, that's his new code name. Did you, uh, did you mean to say Marauders 13? Because you said New Mutants 13. I sure did mean to say Marauders 13. I'm just so excited that Vita is going to be taking over New Mutants. That and and I, Vita wrote, yep, gotcha. Yeah, I'm just so excited that Vita's going to be taking over New Mutants and that Marauders that <laughs> vote. That Marauders vote. And that <laughs> Vita wrote Marauders 13. <laughs> wow, that, so, was, that is one hell of a combination. Oh, uh, that, was, that, was, that was tough to say. And speaking of tough to say con- combinations, I must have conversations. Guys, I'm going home. War poisons Wolverine. Everybody talk about it. Have a great night. <laughs> I think, I think, again, it's one of those moments where you're just like, well, this wasn't going to work. You know, not, not war poisoning Wolverine, which turned out to poison Doug in turn, but then the, the ensuing conversation with Opaluna Saturnine when Brian tries to get a automatic disqualification of the Iraqi, and she says that she would if not for the fact that she was just attempted murder, duh, like, 15 minutes ago, you know? Uh, like, obviously it wasn't going to work. Maybe it's it's showing some character for war that we have yet to see, you know, that, that war would stoop to such an act of cowardice. And I have to wonder how much of that has to do with Opal Luna Saturnine, which, by the way, longtime fans of the show may remember contributor Kevo, my amazing husband, Jonah's awesome boyfriend, as the guy who helped co-anchor Captain Britain for a number of months in the early onset of the show, and has come back from time to time as it's made sense to cover the seldom-published Captain Britain of the early 80s. But I bring this up because in the coming weeks, we're going to begin a feature called HTML on X, combining... Our podcast, Kevo and Mai's HTML, along with the contents of X's for Podcast, bringing you some deep insight into the Captain Britain lore. And one of the first things he pointed out to me about it is the meaning of the name Saturnine means the gift of time. And 
that's certainly a really interesting way to spin things. So, so okay. So, side note, Kevo, Jonah, and I were watching Old Price is Right clips last night, and there was a woman on it named Saturnina, and Kevo looked up her name, and it means small gift of time. And so Saturnine just means gift of time. It actually means gift of Saturn, which is gift of time. So it's just really interesting that Saturnine curries such favor that these people would, I mean, because I think we've been led to believe that the, I don't know why we'd be led to believe that the Arakans are noble in any way, because they actually seem like shitballs, but they're shitballs we really love. And it's to that end, Evelyn, I gotta know. How are you feeling about Saturnine? You know, it's important that we remember that, it, that women need to be talking about women in comics. And Saturnine is certainly affecting the way people feel about the X-Men for a long time to come. Okay, so within just the aspect of Marauders 1415, I, I, I think I get it. Where she is kind of showing off her power, her domain, being like, yeah, Everyone here is really powerful, but I am the most powerful and I run the show. And even with her being rejected by Brian, um, who's now Captain Avalon, which I totally dig. I think that so hot. I I think that there's definitely some jealousy and some malice in how she treats Betsy, but at the same time, I kind of get it where she's so used to being in power that when her power and stuff is challenged or she doesn't get her way it's it's like the spoiled only child kind of deal is the best way to describe how I like I see her and so within this whole feast it just it seems more of a I'm better than all of you adore me and don't question my authority in the coming games and, you know, as Maddie pointed out, that play that Opaluna Saturnine puts on, that dramatic performative, oh, Wolverine, this is what you'll get if you cross me. We're going to go right back to Uncanny X-Men 251, and we're going to crucify you. That'll be what we do. And I loved the snocked with the blood claws in that couple of frames. But I, I agree. Opaluna Saturnine is kind of, I can't tell if people really are that afraid of her or if she's putting up a smoke screen, but she's like having fun at the expense of our mutants in a way that I, I can only think is going to bite her in the ass because we have seen that my precious Jamie kind of could be a match for her. I just want to point out that something Evelyn said about the bitterness that Opaluna Saturnine kind of feels and towards Betsy. It's very Dynasty, Dominique Devereaux, uh, Alexis Colby. It's this weird rivalry where I look at Opaluna Saturnine and she constantly makes these jabs at Betsy that to me don't make sense. She's upset over this pretender. But again, we brought this up in a previous episode. What did she want to happen? Captain Britain be evil or Captain Britain be passed on to someone who happened to be a blood twin relative of the current Captain Britain? So it's a dynamic that I see, I look at and it's this weird, I, like Saturday is, is weird to me right now because it constantly feels like she's pissing on her territory and she's kind of like, this is mine. All this is mine. I'm just toying with all of you. And to that, I say, well, why is she upset at Betsy? Is this a way to get constantly just get back at Betsy? Is she upset at Apocalypse for looking at her? I don't. Why? 
this whole thing and the other chapters that we're going to be talking about later, it just feels that she is working with information that we as readers do not have. And I feel like that's almost a hindrance to the story at this point where we should know a little bit more about her plan and what she's doing. And I get it. They're probably going to do like some twist or something where it's like, oh, this was all planned. But I feel like at this point, we should know a little bit more about her motivations in this moment, about the information that she has has you don't have to give away the ending but at least give us some of the things that she's working with so that we are a more understanding in this moment because at this point it's almost a miss for how I think all of us have been feeling in our like group chat we're all like what is going on so it just she definitely has some information that she's not sharing. And from a writing standpoint, I feel like that's not helping us as readers. And not in an aggressive way against anybody, but I do not feel that Dugan and Percy's Saturnine reads with the same cruel elegance as Teeny's Saturnine. I think Teeny writes a sharper Saturnine, whereas Percy and Dugan maybe write a slightly more spoiled saturnine like there's a there's a certain shine that a character like saturnine really needs to thrive and you know who else had that shine for me that white sword sequence blew my fucking mind so jonah when you said uh poking around in the store i wanted to be like ah because that's gonna be the transition i use and then we said a lot of good things but i do want to point out that iska just flat out gave doug a tracheotomy like it was no big deal loved that and I could have done that. Well, why didn't you? Yeah, for real. Oh my god. Unbeaten for a reason. And then we get the white sword being like, yeah, I don't want to be on a team that cheats. So here's your buddy. He's back from the dead. You don't owe me anything. Have a good day. And Summoner's like, sassy, sassy. I can't believe that you would just be so chill. Why wouldn't you conscript him? And white sword is like, eh. And like, Summoner is like, I wonder, can you bring yourself back? And White Sword's like, I don't want to find out. And then Summoner says something that shortly hereafter becomes kind of significant. Summoner says, when I die, I plan to do it just once. And that feels really significant, knowing what comes in a few pages, all said and done a few pages. Because in analyzing that exchange, the White Sword commits an act of magnanimity. He specifically brings back an opponent out of a desire for a fair sense of combat. This coming from an eternally resurrecting warlord supergod indicates that there is some honor amongst the Iraqi, even if it's not presenting amongst all of the Iraqi. And, you know, in that way, White Sword in this issue is kind of the solemn of that Wolverine X-Force two-parter, where you're like, oh, this guy really does have a lot of depth. And it also shows us that Summoner is playing at some sort of game that the White Sword's not interested in. Summoner seems to be just fine with cheating, and Summoner has always seemed to be just fine with cheating. But let's not forget, the introduction of Summoner had to do with playing a game. To the Summoner, this is all a game. So while everybody else is at this crossroads, this X uh, that represents the intersection of reality, he's at the Ten of Swords like it's hopscotch. And I think in that regard, seeing that the White Sword does not see eye to eye with the summoner explicitly does kind of push the story along in a way that makes it a little bit easier to handle the fact that of all of the Krakoans, the only one who has decent odds is Apocalypse. 
Everybody else has double-digit to single-digit odds of survival, but Apocalypse has a 5 to 1 odds of survival. Okay, but this really does show us our guys are completely overwhelmed. Our guys are fucked royally. There is no chance in shit that our guys are coming out unscathed. Oh, absolutely. It it does not bode well for these people, like for the X-Men, all of this. Like, just like the parlor games they're doing with Iska showing, it's just like, can you never lose? Like, the fact that they pay, play Pin the Tail on the Pogger Pog, like, is probably my favorite panel of all time. <laughs> While the little magic and cable Iska games set the tone for what was uh, to come in Excalibur and Wolverine just because of how batshit insane it all is. I, I think it was, it undercut the moment from the issue before with the not a drop spilled for me. I think that was just as easily a showcase of what Iska could do and to put magic somewhat on, on par with her, you know, for even for a second, I feel like that was immediately undershot. And uh, I also don't know what the relationship between Apocalypse and Cable is right now, but he is just shutting him down at every turn. Uh, I'd like to take a special moment to talk about the panel of Apocalypse sitting across from Genesis and being like, Oh, you raised the kids well. I love that. And that leads directly into the Cable Apocalypse thing. Now, Josh and I had noticed that coming up a little bit more and more in the recent issues of X-Men that, you know, for everything that we're saying about Apocalypse being redeemed, Cable literally lived his entire life to slay Apocalypse. That was his life's mission, was to kill Apocalypse. And Apocalypse's life mission, what at this point in his timeline, was to insert himself into Cable's body to use it forever. Like, ridiculous! So, they're just kind of like, Hi, what's up? You guys want to hang out? It's kind of out of nowhere, and I'm fine with it, kind of. I guess they're all played by Jennifer Coolidge, but I'm kind of <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, I find myself really confused where Cable feels he fits in with this apocalypse narrative. Specifically Jennifer Coolidge and, and Cinderella story. Yeah, I mean, this feels like one of those, like, you know, like I'm imagining, like, Steve Gutenberg playing opposite. Uh, God, who would have been vital in the 90s to play opposite that I still would want to bring up? You know... Andy McDowell, and it's over a child that they both tried to adopt, but somehow at the last second, it, they, they were both going to adopt him, and they were they're having a, a tough custody battle, and the child then brings them together, and they fall in love, and they turn into one big happy family. Like, that, you know, what, what will we call it? I love you so sue me, I guess. I feel like that's what I want to see this Cable Annihilation Apocalypse movie be. I want to see Cable be the Cable between Annihilation and Apocalypse to help them apoca makeup and uh, Naya renew their vows. Uh, you know what? It's knowing knowing what I know now. It is not that far out of the realm of possibility. This is this this could very well be next week's crop of issues. Cable I mean, Cable doing uh, ancient marriage counseling. <laughs> I mean, that's something that uh, Evelyn, you and I talked about last uh, one of the previous episodes was that we think that this is a setup for Apocalypse to either be uh, redeemed and he's going to get back with Genesis and kind of have this like, big moment of, you know, being Krakoan or he's going to fucking die at the hands of his wife. Honestly, like knowing what I know now in these like next upcoming chapters, like I agree, like that could easily be a challenge. It's just marriage counseling. <laughs> 
that could easily be one of the challenges. But I definitely agree. I think that there's still setting up Apocalypse having some big significant role. And again, knowing what I know now with um, Excalibur and Wolverine, it seems like that might be where the twist might come in or the climax of the story. And I'm glad you brought up the pacing of the story because I do want to remind everybody that the first two chapters essentially issued the challenge and set up the prophecies. Where the fuck did those go? We then spent chapters three through like 10 gathering the swords. Everything sort of reset in chapter 11. Chapter 12 provided a retelling of the central Krakoan myth that propelled this narrative forward. That brings us to these two parts chapters 13 and 14 where we very clearly have sort of moved into that sort of like you know if ten of swords is the olympics this is sort of like everybody drinking the night before which sounds terrible for performance at the olympics and that means that we are at chapter 14 of 22 that's you know 7-eleven like <laughs> like we're slurpy the way through this arc and i gotta know guys with a big gulp now even forgetting what we know is coming we are more than halfway. We have discovered that the swords meant little more than keys to prove value and enter the games. We have already seen a number of people cheat, and we've had to question the honor of both our hero. Ugh. We have to question the honor of both our heroes in the form of Wolverine and his just like stupid hot-headed berserker. Like I mean, I know he's Wolverine and he's stupid and he's hot-headed and he's a berserker, but that is just one side of him. And where did this him and Brian hating each other shit come from? Like, they've never gotten along, but this is particularly amped up to a degree that I do not care for. This is just absolutely absurd. This is... I don't like it. But we're more than halfway through. This is not the arc I thought we were going to get in the first place. This isn't even where I thought we were going to go from stasis. Where we stand, looking back, how do you guys feel about the journey so far? I would definitely agree the pacing has been not consistent and I'm still not entirely sure how I feel about it, but I'm leaning towards not liking it where we have, like you said, the first two chapters are just issuing the challenge and then we have the um, Krakoa people finding their swords and then we get to this dinner and... We had like a like a single chapter of the other people finding their swords, and it goes from like really slow to really fast to spending a lot of time on like something versus like not enough time on other stuff that seems just as significant. And it's definitely throwing me off a little bit, especially with uh, Excalibur and Wolverine right after Marauders fourteen and fifteen. You know, coming out of Empire being the last crossover that I both read and covered uh, here on X for Podcast. I, you know where I record. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I feel like this is the the opposite of the issues that I had with Empire. Empire being so densely consolidated and still contrived. I feel like what we've gotten so far in Ten of Swords is decompressed to a fault. 
I think I'm going to have to look back at it in in its totality once it's finished and really be able to gauge where I stand right now because as it stands, uh, you know, three, and I said it in last week's episode, three singular issues of the retelling of the Amenthian Arakan myth was a little too much for my taste. And I completely get where you're coming from because, you know, when I think about what brought me back to the X-Men, what made me say, yes, this is the era, it was Hoxpox. Hoxpox, which was a predominantly tight 12 issues. You could maybe make some comments about issue six of both series, felt like an epilogue that moved the story into its next direction. But even then, let's acknowledge it for what it was, you know, just an epilogue to create a new setup. Here, at almost twice the issues, I find myself struggling for why they were all necessary. Personally, I see how mechanically like how mechanistically, like they all get the gears turning at the right rate in the right order. But I am starting to wonder why this had to go on, maybe as long as it went on, not to use like a heavy terminology on it. Jonah, I brought you back to the X-Men, to the present, from the past. I Days of Future, now the fucked you. And it was because Hoxpox was alluring. It was tight. It was clean. And you know, show producer guy who runs the network, Joey, Joey actually dropped out after a number of the issues post Hoxpox because he was like, it went from this tight, easy to read thing to something a little bit more manic. And I get how that was a turnoff for him. Jonah, now that you're here, now that you're in it, are as a new reader, are you turned off? Are you doing okay with it? If you weren't on this show, would you drop some titles? You know, the way I view this is it's like I'm tied down and I'm being consistently edged, but there's no payoff. (laughs) And I think that's the best way I can describe it. Like, I wouldn't have the ability to drop anything because my hands are tied. And I'd still want to read everything and get the story to, you know, see if I would eventually enjoy it. But a lot of this is it's too much build up. And I'm really concerned that it's going to plateau instead of pay off and be that, you know, big rewarding moment. I'm just really concerned at this point that they might have bitten off more than they can chew. And they're kind of in that, like, it's kind of like when little kids get excited to tell a story and they tell you all the details really, really, really fast. and They go through it and they kind of rush everything. And they leave out that it was about a ghost the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I saw Sixth Sense. And I'm just really, like, I'm really happy that they're getting to tell this story and that they all seemed very excited and really, like, all about what was going to happen. But it also, like, I feel like some of that excitement, I don't understand where it comes from. Like, they put, not even just in titles, I think it's just more about this crossover. Like, if this crossover didn't happen and I was just reading titles, I'm sure I would have been fine, would have been happy. Yeah, da, 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 I'm Jonah. But this crossover almost makes me question the artists, as an uh, umbrella term artist, not the people who make the art, because the art's, you know, always been on point. It just makes me think that their storytelling of what they find exciting isn't exactly what I'm finding exciting. That's a really interesting way to put it. And I feel like, you know, I felt the same way. And so it's not that it's necessarily bad, but it's not what I expected. I just spent 12 issues being told I was getting a sword fight. And this is a pretty significant turning point in that narrative. (laughs) 
Nico and Jonah here again. And Jonah, I want to get your opinion. What do you think about Gorgon? He has a decent enough design where I look at him and for some reason I think Medusa. Don't ask what. Not Medusa as in the inhuman. Medusa as in the Greek mythological woman that was tortured by Poseidon and then ruined by Athena. So that's a thing. I don't know why. He looks like a snake. Like he just looks like a snake. And I just want to go... He does also have that neat ability to transform people into stone. So you're not terribly wrong in where the design is meant to come from. His name is Gorgon and Medusa was a Gorgon. Oh my god, it all makes sense. Oh yeah, now I, now I get it too. Well, <laughs> in this next segment, Kyle celebrates that he's come to actually like Gorgon, the least covered member of the Great Captain so far. And Arturo actually brings up one of my favorite comics. He brings up how parts of Ten of Swords are beginning to feel a bit more like Sandman. Of course, there's tons of room to talk about Jonah's favorite captain, Magic. It is absolutely the uh, Magic show. She sat everybody down and said, I am Magic. She is Magic. Chapters 13 and 14 of Ten of Swords, Marauders issues 14 and 15, written by Jerry Duggan and Ben Percy, art by Stefano Caselli, colors by Edgar Delgado, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. It's home for the holidays apocalypse style, as the Krakoans and Arakans have a very British meal together on the eve of their showdown. Now, with me in room two, I have Kyle. Hi, uh, you can find me on both uh, Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And we also have Robbie. Hey, you could follow me at Age of Polaris on Twitter. And with us, we have Arturo. And I'm Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm Josh Will. You can find me at Asleep at the Wheel on Twitter and at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L dot com. So it's the eve of the showdown. We have all of our sword bearers, the Krakoans and Arakans together. Right, we, we saw everyone kind of come together in stasis. We saw the ceremony. They used their swords to unlock the gates and get to Otherworld. We saw Apocalypse kind of deal with the beginning of his family interdynamic stuff. Uh, we got some new tarot cards. And now it's, it's the eve of the showdown. And it's a time where we're going to get some really interesting personalities blending together. For me, this story was all about the interesting interactions, kind of pairing together a lot of different characters that maybe normally or, or otherwise in this story wouldn't get a chance to interact. Uh, great dynamics between Storm and Death, Logan and Saturnine, Ilyana and Gorgon, Ilyana and Cable and Iska, Logan and Brian, Apocalypse and Genesis. Just a lot of different groupings and characters bouncing off of each other in this night before the showdown begins. Yeah, agreed. That's probably the coolest thing about about this whole little arc. Well, Arturo then, get us started. Tell me, what was your favorite part of Marauders 14 and 15? Well, uh, I'll tell you my favorite character of it is really coming out as Magic. I loved seeing Magic mm -hmm. bouncing around and interacting with Cable and Iska, and, uh, and Magic just really was a standout for me. But yeah, I mean, I, there wasn't one interaction that I didn't enjoy. You know, I, I love this whole this whole pretense of we're going to fight tomorrow, but tonight there is like nobody's fighting. Although, yes, there is a discreet poisoning and 
uh, a near stabbing. So yes, there is some underhanded stuff going on. But I just love the the civility of this, you know, and and just how they're interacting and and, and learning about each other. I really liked what they did with Magic. Obviously, she is not one of Jerry or Ben's regular characters. She is typically in the New Mutants book during our Dawn of X era. But she's also a character that has been written very differently under different writers over the years. You know, I've mentioned her sexuality a lot of times. Bendis wrote her as being more asexual, whereas Guggenheim wrote her as being a lesbian. And now Hickman writes her much more like pansexual. And her personality also changes with them. You know, we've seen dark, moody Ileana, and we've seen kind of bashful best friend Ileana, and we've seen you know, kind of peppy blonde girl Ileana sometimes, which is always just a little off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because they did this same issue, uh, like same story, because it's a two-parter, and with the same crew, the same writers, you got to see her kind of more of changing in different company, like different sides of her. Like we saw the captain, and she had this really great professional relationship with Gorgon, like where they have this mutual respect of each other, and, you know, they're captains and elite warriors. And we saw that side. And then she crosses the room and she's with Teen Cable and she becomes like a kid again. Like she lets the goofy side of her come out because she's hanging out with a teenager. Yeah, she almost has a kind of sense of childish delight in being a part of this contest and sharing it with Cable, which which is kind of refreshing for me after having her spend so much time in that dark, gloomy phase. It was nice seeing her kind of let go for a bit. Well, I just, and I love, and this goes back to her helping warlock uh you know prepare for the tournament i just love how on point she has been through this whole this whole story you know she was she's the first one that to stand on the board she was you know she's kind of become that that this character that we're going through the tournament kind of with her in a way and uh yeah i just i think she's such a badass right now if you're writing an x-men book and you're not pulling in magic somehow you're missing out you know like she's just such a cool character right now i agree i think the dawn of x has been a great showcase for her you know she's had so many great moments i've loved and not even just like the show stealing ones like at the end of x-men empire or you know when she's offering to make out with people in space and new mutants (laughs) but like smaller moments like in the new mutants run where they're on the trip and she's just like hey i'm hanging out with my friends until something happens that could threaten krakoa and her and danny have their little tete-a-tete and they're like okay if this is a krakoan issue now i'm in charge now I'm a captain and she like puts on her captain hat and changes gears but in the same book we also get like when she's just at home chilling and she finds the green coffee and she's just hugging it because she loves the coffee so much (laughs) she's become a very well-rounded relatable human character over this last year year and a half and I love her so much yeah 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 she's yeah I've totally fallen in love with her what about you, Robbie? What did you get from, uh, or any thoughts on Ilyana in these Marauders issues? Uh, I absolutely love how she's thriving in her element. One part that I really, really loved was her interaction with Hog Ear Pog. Because <laughs> he's complaining that the pathway is blocked, and she just says, Magic Jick couldn't give a damn. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, I forgot about that. That's at the beginning. Yeah, <laughs> so much happened. I forgot that they were when they were waiting outside at the gates. We start with them all waiting outside to get in, and some of them are getting glimpses of each other for the first time. And you know, Doug soiling himself because he sees a giant crocodile, and Ilyana's just being snarky. This card's not edible. That monster's a moron. <laughs> <laughs> And what I really love is just overall, we get to see magic be funny, which, you know, we have seen in previous issues, but that is definitely the biggest highlight. And also the way she kind of bonds with Gorgon in getting to like see if Iska could like goof up in some way. <laughs> well, and it's humanized Gorgon too, right? Yeah. Like seeing Gorgon, it, it, I guess now you get kind of like a boost in my eyes if you're hanging out with magic and just seeing Gorgon and her, their interaction and their whole, you know, captain to captain uh, respect just kind of elevates him a little bit i'm like yeah he's he's, he's i was it. thinking the same thing like gorgon having friends and having relationships with characters we like makes him more likable just by proxy and yeah. since he's since he's one of the characters that you know came over with the quote-unquote villains i know we're, we're trying not to call them villains anymore but there's with those characters there's almost like you're always looking for them either to slip back into their villainous ways or when they're not doing that prove that they're on the side of angels now and 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 really part of the cause and i feel like gorgon's doing that you know whether it's accompanying apocalypse on his little side quest or or assessing the threats here at the dinner party like he just he genuinely seems like he's part of the team you know like it's it's not just like he's there because it's convenient for him it's he's he's part of the cause yeah definitely i with with these two issues i i would feel comfortable putting my life in his uh charge i would be comfortable with him protecting me i'd say so as we're looking back on the entrance, and and I I completely agree with Gorgon. He's someone that I have grown to like over this period in his brief appearances and now his role in X of Swords in ways that I did not expect. Like I had no feelings for Gorgon pre Hoxpox. I was looking back at Storm meeting Death and you know putting a flower in. I guess where <laughs> it would be. That was cute. And, that was adorable. Uh, and then I catch a little side moment of Doug bashfully looking at Bay, and she comes over and yells at him and tells him to avert the eyes soft boy yes yes that was a that was a great interaction between them I honestly didn't even realize that it was Bay at first it took me until the second time before I before I realized that uh that was actually who it was I I was really confused that first time I thought that he was watching Logan and Aurora and then Bay had told him to not look but I don't think that now now that I've, I've read it a second time that's definitely not what was actually happening yes and i doubt that this is the only moment in x of swords that requires rereading with future contact oh yeah <laughs> there's a, such great little foreshadowing moments and we'll talk about that later but yeah, yeah. yes all right so inside the dining hall now we've talked about uh iliana and her interactions we talked about gorgon uh there's going to be a lot to talk about logan in a little bit but 
let's start with kind of the cover, the the main, I guess, marketed or um, expected interaction from this issue, which is Storm and Death, right? So we see her kind of being a little flirty with him outside as she's sizing them up. She's getting a feel of war and how learning quickly that war is a little more impetuous than you would think and trying to get a measure of death. And then inside at the dining room, we get the beautiful scene of them underwater dancing while mermaids are making out around them <laughs> having a just a really interesting character spotlight for both of these two one who we know a tremendous amount about and one who we know very very little about a really interesting pairing especially when you just look at the anubis like jackal the black visage of death and how similarly or how much of him parallels what we normally see of T'Challa with the panther. The same Ooh. colors, the same kind of design that T'Challa is, the king of the dead. Like these relationships she's had with darkness and death and now literally dancing with death here in Marauders. The art in this issue because we've had, we have a crew of different artists and a lot of times they play to their strengths and sometimes they do a very good job of imitating or mirroring each other so that way we can match feelings from other issues. Um, but Stefano Caselli in these two issues, I thought did a fantastic job of kind of keeping it very static. This was not an action packed issue, um, but using a lot of colors and a tremendous focus on facial expressions. There are so many close-up facial expressions that are so well done in here as characters are interacting with each other or observing the interactions of others. And he really breaks out the colors here for a beautiful, beautiful sequence of Aurora and Death dancing underwater. Kyle, what were your thoughts on this interaction? Oh, geez. Um, I just I just loved how beautiful the their pairing was. And the fact that Storm just doesn't have any fear of death. And death being kind of confused by that. It's it's kind of something that he's never experienced before, I it seems. Well, and it also it also made me, you know, think about when he when he points out to her that you know, so many of your your compatriots have have tasted death many times before, but you're different. It really made me stop and think: like, when was Storm resurrected? Has she been resurrected? I mean, I, I know in Giant Size she came so close to death, but that whole story was about her beating it. So, like, she's and it it just it did underscore this point about Storm that in a world of resurrections, she's still kind of has the OG. Had to do that. She's the OG. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I don't know. She she hasn't she hasn't straight up she hasn't been Quentin Quired, you know. That's for that's, sure. Yeah, it, she storms on a different level, and it's and it's interesting that Death was able to like suss that out, you know, like that he can. I'm curious to know what his power set's all about. Yeah, there was a good. I think one of the the big trends of these two issues, or one of the overrunning themes, was that the Krakoans got to see that, with the exception of Iska, the Arakans are a little more human and vulnerable than they had expected. And the Arakans got to see that the Krakoans, with the exception of maybe Doug, are a little more formidable than they expected. 
<laughs> One thing that I really, really loved with the whole dancing scene is just the scenery of underwater. Because one thing that I really love with Storm in general is when she tends to have beautiful nature backgrounds, like if it's like a garden or if it's like water. And them choosing like an underwater theme for the dance was... It was very smart. <laughs> it's just so unexpected. This whole, like, I don't know if, if you guys have read uh, Neil Gaiman, Sandman. This whole dinner sequence reminds me so much of, of a Sandman kind of scene, you know, where we're like in the heart of the dreaming and reality is not what it seems. And, you know, there's a, uh, a, a, a wily monarch at the center of it all that can, you know, alter reality with a snap of fingers. It's, it's very that, in, in my opinion. You know, and it has those trappings of, of you know, royalty and servants and a ball. And, and it's just, I don't know. So it's something that to me is, it just resonates. And it's a, it's a scene that it feels familiar and, uh, and just enjoyable to me. And it's not a place that you, you know, that you typically see the X-Men, right? Like, no. And, and I've said this before, the X-Men is, uh, has always been more to me about, well, a little more like sci-fi when it comes to it, where it is in, in comic books, because it makes sense, right? Because there's the x gene and there's you know and there's uh they're, they're fighting against humanity and hatred and bigotry and technology and all of that stuff kind of makes sense to me right but this topsy-turvy you know trippy dream sequence is not you know it, it is not what i associate with the x-men right away but it's there i mean it's it's in the it's in the dna certainly going back and it's just cool that they're there to me, it felt a little, it reminded me of Gatsby somewhat. Um, there's a particular line that I love in Great Gatsby where uh, Nick and Jordan, or Nick meets Jordan at the first big dinner party and she says that, you know, she loves large gatherings because they're so much more intimate, which is counterintuitive, but completely <laughs> true. You know, if there's five people sitting at a table, there's no privacy. But when you have a hundred people in a room, you know, it's almost like you're alone in your conversation with someone because there's so much noise and background, like no one's paying attention to you. Mm -hmm. And this cast was big enough that they were able to have that, that they were able to have these more quiet personal interactions without everyone being involved, without major characters like Apocalypse or Genesis weighing it down. You know, war and death were able to go off without feeling like Genesis was watching every one of their moves. Um, and so it gave us a little more in that respect. Let's bring this towards the end of 14 and seeming into 15, because there's a big moment here in the middle. And it brings us to some of our interactions that we haven't talked about yet, which deal with the character of Logan. Logan plays a big role in these um, two issues. And we get some very interesting interactions with both him and Brian. And him and Saturnine. And with him and Brian, we see that Logan has a little bit of a resentment against Brian because he feels that Brian could have just ended this by taking one for the team. And he's a little pissed that they all, you know, are going to have to risk their lives because, you know, Brian wouldn't nut up. Yeah. With Saturnine, we get something <laughs> Nice, nice choice of words. <laughs> with Saturnine, we get something different where... No, Logan feels like he can take her down or he can try to single-handedly end this on his own. And that's really what bridges issue 14 into 15, the cliffhanger that I don't think was much of a cliffhanger for any of us uh, with Logan uh, taking a shot at Saturnine and trying to kill her. And then a very interesting way of opening it up, um, very visually impactful in 15, where 
Saturnine goes into Logan's head and reminds him that, you know, not only could she kill him, but she could wipe out every iteration of him in the multiverse and don't even think of fucking with me, little man. Which was amazing. But can I just say how jarring that beginning of 15 was and it was all just a dream? Yeah. Saturnine... I guess I didn't quite grasp how powerful Saturnine was uh, at the beginning of, of X of Swords. Um, she, yeah, she's, you know, likening her to to Dream of the Endless in, in the Dream Kingdom is, is pretty right on. Because, like, reality literally just is her whim. I honestly didn't realize that Saturnine had so much power. The few times that I have interacted with her in the past, she didn't really seem all that powerful, but I think since Ten of Swords has started, she's really demonstrated the power that she does truly have now that she's ruling over other worlds between freezing time to turning death to a little chibi death even just completely silencing the entire party so that she and brian can talk yeah it's it's just her level of power is just way above anybody else yes and and i was glad to see that again i've i felt like she was a little mis i don't say mischaracterized throughout this but that like her power level has been up and down. You know, they made her right off the bat so powerful with that moment where, you know, she stopped time and Chibi's death. And then I felt like we saw her getting played by Betsy in a little con move and then stabbed by Wolverine. And I, I was glad to see some of that get kind of spun back around and put in order that no, 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 no. Like, these things don't happen unless Saturnine says they can happen. Yeah. Recontextualization. Yeah. Yeah. It's Saturnine's world. We're just visiting. <laughs> yep. That's Literally. that's exactly how I'm I'm interpreting pretty much everything at this point. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're, we're not even at the contest yet. But yes. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I have some feelings about Logan. Some of it is overall Dawn of X. Some of it is these four issues going even ahead into Excalibur and Wolverine. And it's important to note out that the four issues of Marauders 14 and 15 and then the two chapters that follow Excalibur 14 and Wolverine 7, three out of four of them have Ben Percy as a contributing writer, who is also, you know, the writer of Wolverine's solo book and X-Force, the title that heavily features Wolverine as another lead character. But there's something about what feels like a backslide in his character. And we see it a lot in these Marauders issues. You know, this is someone that for the better part of a decade was the headmaster of the school. Like he had stepped up into a level of, he was still Wolverine, but he was a Wolverine who had assumed responsibility. It feels like we've been getting a little more of a brash, selfish Wolverine, like a Wolverine that's literally pissing in Magneto's helmet and, you know, risking fucking everything up at the dinner party. Like, it does. It feels a little off or disappointing character-wise. I don't know if that's just me. What are your thoughts on Percy's characterization of Logan throughout this? I agree that it's a little all over the place. Here's the problem with Wolverine. There's just too much Wolverine, right? Oh, yeah. And, and even <laughs> it, like, and reading the handbook, you know, illustrated that in a big way. Like all of this sordid history and retcons and, you know, litter of children like spread out all over the place. But even in Dawn of X, you know, we have this, this whole new paradigm and we're still, it's just still too much Wolverine, you know? So it's, it's hard, I think, for him to be consistent. I think Percy 
Cersei has a really good grip on on Logan's voice and kind of his his vibe. I mean, it Wolverine is Wolverine, right? But yeah, there there is some inconsistencies. But yeah, Wolverine as headmaster, I I feel is like that's long gone. More of a anti-authoritarian Wolverine is cool, but this is a different world like and he was the authority. He was the head of the Jean Grey school. Like he had matured and yes, he died and, you know, he went through some stuff in the lead up to his death, but I feel like there's something a little, something about it doesn't fully click for me. Like I get where some of the aspects of this era's Logan are coming from, but not all of them. So for me, I think that a lot of his actions are side effects of the new normal for for mutants on Krakoa, where they don't have to worry about the consequences of taking these chances and throwing their lives on the line. And I don't I think he's stuck in that mind frame where he can just be resurrected. Even though right now he's in other worlds and him dying would result in him not coming back as he was. I don't think he's able to break out of that mindset yet. Yeah, I mean, I really like the Cornell issues. Uh, Cornell, uh, Paul Cornell, who was the writer that uh, handled Wolverine as he lost his powers and uh, did the killable stories and the three months to live. Um, in the lead up to Charles Soule's death of Wolverine, I thought he did a really great job of having Wolverine, of seeing how Wolverine took his immortality for granted and how when he lost it, when he lost his healing power, like he was a terrible fighter. Like he had adjusted his fighting style over the years to just take as much damage as possible because he could, that was his strength. And now he was just getting his ass kicked by, you know, Batrock the Leaper or other characters because... He couldn't take the damage anymore, you know, and, and dealing, you know, you saw a Wolverine that was dealing with mortality and really pointing out that it had never been something he had to fear. That's what made him be able to get away with all of his bullshit in the past. And so I, I don't I don't know, like, because if of any X-Men character like Wolverine should be the one most attuned for a mortal mutant world. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Yeah, Wolverine should be. And yeah, there's something about, I think, creatively, you go back. And this is why when people talk about we should kill Wolverine again, I'm like, no, you can't. Wolverine is Wolverine is like an institution, you know? And, and when you're writing him, you're not going to write a, a more evolved Wolverine, I think. You're going to still get, you know, get exactly this. A feisty little cuss who, you know, solves problems by stabbing him. That is true. That is true. There, There is never a problem that Wolverine didn't think he could solve by stabbing someone, which I guess <laughs> is about as on-brand as you can be for the end of Marauders 14. There's one more big interaction I wanted to talk about, which is the Apocalypse family. For me, this felt very... The Apocalypse and the Horsemen and Genesis sides of this were very much like a Thanksgiving movie, like Home for the Holidays, Family Stone. Yes. Like, yes. <laughs> yes, this is like Family Stone, Krakoa style for them. And, you know, just him watching, like, he doesn't want Doug to die. And there was a really cool thing, you know, Doug, war poisons Doug. And then the white sword comes over and uses his power to heal him because, you know, poison is without honor and uh, he fucking hates war. But, like, then Apocalypse, who doesn't want Doug to die, 
is looking at it with pride, like, oh, I'm so proud. Like, my daughter tried to sneakily poison one of her opponents before the fight. Like, I, I couldn't be prouder. <laughs> I love that part a lot. You yeah. raised our children well, Genesis. <laughs> and and everybody is squabbling in the background. <laughs> Yeah, and this is this is Craig T. Nelson and Diane Keaton sitting back and watching and, you know, having their next level conversation. Yep. <laughs> yeah, they, I, I love it. And then uh, when Cable kind of wanders into their interaction, he's like, so this has got to be awkward. Just so good. Oh, and Apocalypse looking at him in, with scorn. Uh, I felt so bad for Cable. It was like he couldn't do anything to get Apocalypse's approval. Part of me wonders, and you know, uh, Nico and I just had a long, long conversation about the history of Apocalypse and Cable um, last week. Part of me wonders if, you know, like Apocalypse is just thinking back and remembering to like how many years of stories were about him needing like this was the body that was going to be his ultimate body and grant him immortality as like the king of earth yeah i think i love it feels like apocalypse has a lot of affection for cable well well for cable and for and for doug you know apocalypse apocalypse blue dad you know he, he really is like all the mutants daddy yeah he's really growing into that role He's a hundred percent the patriarch in this story. Yeah. Um, throughout X of Swords. Yeah. Yeah, and it's crazy. And I mentioned this, I think, last week. You know, I, when we got into Dawn of X, it felt like Xavier and Magneto were like the two, you know, pillars. But as far as character work goes, and like who the reader's been going along with, Apocalypse has really just taken on this whole new, you know, prominence in the whole universe. Absolutely. And we go into the final pages of Marauders um, with more beautiful Stefano Caselli art. Um, I loved the way he drew the women here at the end. Um, and Saturnine makes her show. She has her 19 or 20 cards. I don't know if there's two Gorgon cards in there. We don't get a full count. But she throws them up in the air and grabs two. And just by pure random chance, <laughs> the person she hates the most is paired up with Iska the Unbeaten for the very first fight. Let's get fucking started to the death. <laughs> weird um, but the, that last shot too of betsy saturnine and iska is just beautiful stunning. yeah um, yeah has has caselli done any other um books in dawn of x you guys know he has i know i've seen his name i would have to look it up right now because um, i i mean i i love it's true what you said about the facial expressions it is just like masterful he's got this really great blend of of realistic and kind of cartoony you know it's like very expressive and uh yeah it's just beautiful beautiful line work yeah that final panel honestly i would love to have that as like poster oh <laughs> yeah yeah that would be such a great piece to to hang yeah the i mean the cool thing about him is every character it one it feels like he knows these characters right it, it, he feels like a familiar artist and two they're all very different you know there's a lot of artists and i'm not gonna you know point out greg land or anybody else that's awful but <laughs> where it's kind of like everybody kind of looks the same you know like the the women have the same faces and you know it's just like you can tell that's betsy because her hair is purple but otherwise she looks exactly like this chick and yeah and that's definitely not the case here because ellie just has this really really masterful grip on these guys no and betsy saturnine and iska are not wildly different body types but there are just like the more you stare at this last image like there are subtle differences to the size and shape and the way he's drawing them he is not 
doing standard female mold. He has different noses and mouths and eyes for each of the characters. He has different body shapes. You know, his his Wolverine is a different shape. His, uh, you know, I flip back a page and the scenes with Iska Cable and Ilyana are all facial expressions. Like there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven panels in a row that are just close-ups with facial expressions changing in each one. And it tells the whole story. He would not be the best artist for every chapter of x of swords but he was fantastic for these chapters oh yeah no yeah. and i would i would love to see him on an ongoing you know like like this guy is just great i i, I really dig his art oh 100 percent. i want more of him moving forward yeah more of him less brett booth <laughs> last, last thoughts on <laughs> moving right past that bit of controversy <laughs> oh uh, I, I think i think that marauders <laughs> is these these two books uh they really set the stage for where things are going next they gave us enough interaction with the various characters to get to understand um the personalities of the rocky uh delegation i'm kind of scared <laughs> and with good reason <laughs> I have one of the things I've enjoyed most out of these first 14 chapters has been the moments where we're able to spotlight and get character of the Iraq and sword bearers. I know I've mentioned this in previous weeks as well, but every time we get moments with them, these characters have been fantastic. They are real unique characters being developed Mm -hmm. with unique voices. They are not your typical X-Men adversarial group. R.E. the Reavers or Marauders or Acolytes or um, Nasty Boys or Dark Riders, where it's just like generic group. Can you even remember their names? Like they're all the sameness, whatever. Like the Iraq and Swordbearers in the last month and a half are leaps and bounds above all of those groups of characters I just named already. Yeah, yeah, you're mm-hmm. you're 100% right. I mean, the only thing those characters all have going for them is really great design, right? They're they're visually compelling. But yeah, I mean, you get you get a couple of personalities like Fabian Cortez or whatever, and then the rest are just like and then we have a strong guy, and then we've got a fire person maybe, and then we've got a, you know, somebody with sharp claws, and you don't really get much else. But yeah, with with this with the Iraqi, we've really gotten a taste for all of them and even even their big dumb bruiser has you know an incredible amount of charm and he speaks in iambic pentameter like what (laughs) (laughs) yes like he is he is better than forearm or bone breaker or any like yes yeah yes 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 all right robbie any last thoughts on marauders before we close up chapters 13 and 14 of 10 of swords it was just the interactions that i really liked overall another highlight was that little cup game <laughs> that cable and magic play with Iska. and you know it's just the little things like little moments like that is what i really love in issues so i really like that pin the tail on the pog was another <laughs> oh rule <my> yeah <laughs> yes. oh my and god watching Ileana, just like more and more excited with like this just childlike awe and wonder at watching Iska 
like yes. do whatever random thing she designs like in the most amazing way possible. <laughs> it's adorable. Yeah. She's like, Ooh, I want to see what happens when you mix with Domino. Yes. Like, yeah, I think magic has a little bit of a crush and fascination with Iska and it's adorable. Hopefully a future uh, comic cons, uh, we could all play pin the tail on the pog your pog. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Hey everybody, Jonah and Nico here to talk about fan favorite X-Men Storm, whether she was a thief in Cairo to being the X-Men leader to being a punk rock goddess to an expert ballroom dancer underwater. She's blessed us with many surprises, especially with this love-hate relationship with death that she seems to have. Well, I mean, considering she spent her entire life with death coming for everyone she loved, it was only a matter of time before she fell in love with death. And in this next segment, we're going to get to hear some really incredible responses from people about that amazing storm sequence. We have Nathan, Rod, Raven, Dante, and I pop back up in this one. But to get to hear people talk about what storm means to them is pretty amazing. everybody this is nathan you can find me online at dazzler aoa on twitter and instagram and raven where can we find you hey i'm raven you can find me at dame red bento just type that in you can find me all over the net twitch twitter instagram hopefully once i get my new computer and everything in a few months i will have new content and streaming and gaming Ooh, uh, dante where can everybody find you at you can find me on twitter and instagram at inferno magic uh rod hey you can find me on twitter and instagram at rod comma the <laughs> i love it i love it i love it and um and also joining us nico nico where can we find you you guys can usually find me editing this show, but if I'm not in my headphones <laughs> editing it, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Yay. Yay. All right. So today we are covering Marauders 14 and 15. So this is part 13 and 14 of the Exosword crossover, the Ten of Swords crossover uh, with story by Gary Dugan and Benjamin Percy. Uh, we've got Stefano Castellar on art and Edgar Delgado on color. So so what is everybody thinking of Saturnine? <laughs> do, do, can I use that word? Long time fan, first time hater. I know. Do, do you guys agree with Wolverine? Is he is Saturnine just doing this so that she can hop on top Brian's stop? Or yes. Like... Yes. I mean, I feel like that's, yes. that's one of the main points. I feel like there's some other points too, but that's the main one. <laughs> <laughs> like she practically said it her freaking self. Like, you know, oh yes, well, I can rethink about that that horrible thing that just happened if you give in to me like ew cruella Deville, get your hands off the puppy at 9 30 we nicknamed uh the situation that she's searching for her concubrine oh, <laughs> oh my lanta that is great I'm like, oh. I'm like, she just wants to ride the cock till she finds the hot. So, I mean, <laughs> right. That is pretty much the situation. She's just looking to get her Saturn nine or 10 in. So, <laughs> oh my God. She's like, I am macaroni in a pot. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, what, what's, what's the answer to that? Cheese me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. 
starting to hate that woman. She needs to, <laughs> like, honestly, she needs to be punted in the taco. No, no, I mean, I was, I was basically okay with her until after this Marauders issue, after the first two. And I was like, oh no, I need her to die now. I don't want her to be alive anymore. Right. I, was, I was even okay with her hating Betsy because Betsy is sometimes annoying, but like, <laughs> oh, God. Wow. She's going after all of them now and like playing like whatever she wants just for the hell of it because people entered mm-hmm. her land. I'm like, mm-hmm. Karen, it's, it wasn't really your land anyway. You kind of just <laughs> took it over. You just colonized it. Right. <laughs> so get over yourself. And she is just straight up running a drinking party. Like this is actually just yes. a spoiled rich girl being like, everybody come to my house. We're serving drinks. Exactly. And then doing terrible things to them because they said one like nasty thing about <laughs> the way her eyeliner looked. It's like, look, bitch, it was off. Okay. <laughs> I, I loved, I don't know about if anybody else knows it. I love how everybody else says like, you know, these fine, gorgeous crystal glasses and like Wolverine's over there drinking in the corner out of like whiskey out of a trash can. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically. <laughs> He's like, what's the biggest cup you have? <laughs> He's not fancy. <laughs> oh God, no! God, no! They come up. They're like, they're like, would you like to try this other world delicacy? He's like, no, give me whiskey and a trash can. Right. <laughs> like, I need your biggest glass and your second biggest glass, and then go the fuck away. <laughs> Uh, Speaking of Wolverine, the one thing I didn't like that they did it in the first and probably the second Marauders issue is that they made him j- almost uh, or look like he was just as tall as Brian. I'm like, that's false. <laughs> He's on apple crates. We all know it. <laughs> it's the Hugh Jackmanification of Wolverine. <laughs> it is. I'm like, Hugh Jackman doesn't play him anymore. Make him short again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Um. So the one of the biggest parts of the issue and one of my favorite parts of the two issues that we're covering right now was storm stance with death. Like oh, I just yes. loved oh. the, the poetry of it. Um, where are you guys all with that? Like, what was your guys' thought on that? That was oh, one of the most gorgeous scenes. It was so beautifully played out because she had no fear of him. She knew him. She, she wasn't running towards him or away from him. She just danced right beside him and then walked away it was so good oh yeah i i definitely loved it and and if anything this finally this confirmed what i think hickman and the team are doing with storm because from the beginning they were like oh you know we have plans for a lot of characters and people asked him about storm because you know storm hasn't been written the best in like the last few years and given that much of a part and they're like yeah we have big plans for her and like since the beginning she's been like head of more death or rebirth situations like she's the head of the person that announcing people being reborn she almost died and she even got questioned like why don't you just die and then come back like everybody else is and she's like mm-hmm. no I'm fighting mm-hmm. for my life because if you don't fight for your life then what's the point mm-hmm. and she's just she's never really died like I've kind of looked it up and either she's died in like big massive events where everyone's died mm-hmm. or she's never really died on her own so death was right when it's he's like or they or whoever uh, is like you know you've never died like your other counterparts and mm-hmm. I think that's what they're gonna do they're gonna probably transform her because she got the death card and it's all about transformation she's probably gonna transform into more maybe a goddess of death maybe take his place or a goddess of life and rebirth since Krakoa is all about rebirth and new life like they're gonna I feel like they're gonna tap more into her like her goddess power and Mm. maybe revamp her a little bit 
I do have to say this was the first time I've actually liked death as a horseman. Usually the apocalypse horseman deaths are just all like, raw, I'm going to kill you. Like, you know, no subtlety to it. They're just all about death, death, death. But the, the original death to me, there's just such subtlety, such complexity, such poetry to them. Um, so with that, do you guys have a favorite sword bearer from Araco yet? Oh, Bay. Oh, Bay. Oh. Sweet gods, Bay. <laughs> I think uh, for me, I would have to probably like if we're talking like Arakan sword, Araki. Sorry, if we're talking Araki sword bearers, I think there is something really visually alluring about war, but they haven't really gone to the depths I would have hoped for with exploring the character. So mm-hmm. I guess it has to be Bay, the Blood Moon, with the Doom Note that wants to be understood via emotion and not language. There's a note living in her throat that wants to be understood on an emotional level that communicates languagelessly. That is the sound of my heartbeat. Oh so my I God. think it's mm. got to be Bay. Yeah, that is all of us, isn't it? God, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I was going to say, I think my, I have like a two part to this. Like my favorite sword is Death Sword because I really like the curvature mm-hmm. of that and the design. It's really awesome. But my mm-hmm. favorite sword bearer, I would have to be Iska. I just like her attitude and her <laughs> Like I aspire to be funny. that level of like owning and passive aggressive and petty. I just love it. <laughs> What about you, Dante? Yeah, Dante, what about you? I think I'm right there with Nico on Bay. Uh, something about how they conveyed so much emotion and depth into the character in just a few pages mm-hmm. uh, was amazing to me. I mean, you know, we we first see her, you know, killing a giant monster, and it's like, I'm going to kill some men. I'm like, all right, I'm here <laughs> that. And then here she is, like, just, just wanting to make a connection and not being able to for her entire life. And, mm-hmm. you know, almost... Um, yeah, it's just it was just it was intense. Like, oh my god, the Doom Note is is such an overwhelming power, and yeah, I, I kind of felt like Bay is all of us. Like, that's what we want, right? We want to be understood. Um, yeah, it was amazing. I'm all, I'm here for Bay. Oh, yeah. I really love it. It was we we all want to be understood. Meow. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Even the cat's in on it. I know. Understood too. Oh, I for me, I would have to say right now my favorite still probably Red Root, but I'm like Bay is quickly becoming up there with a favorite. I just with Red Root, I love the 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 inverse bond that she has with Krakoa. I mean, I'm sorry that she has with Arako versus mm-hmm. what Doug has with Krakoa. Um, mm-hmm. and I just love seeing her like her whole look. I just love her whole look. Yeah, she um, is awesome. I know. I'm like yeah. Yes. And she seems like she's going to be good with the sword, too. So I'm like, yes. Mm-hmm. So we're in this big party, right? And the dinner courses come oh my God. on, right? Like, <gasps> Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> there was something else. Yeah. Like, like I love Death's reaction to the scarabs being served. Like, <laughs> oh, that poor servant. It's uh, like, why? That absolutely has to be on purpose. That, like, under that helmet is some sort of scarab person. Oh. And we see the scarab on the back of his head when he takes his yeah. helmet off. So underneath, and then we see the hints of it later on. So that Saturnine purposely served scarabs to a person who is, like, I wouldn't serve beef to Bova. So, <laughs> like, 
I, who's serving roast fairy to Pixie? This is like bad fucking form. So that's absolutely Saturnine trying to needle at the Iraqi as much as she's trying to needle at the Krakoans. Oh yeah, she hates oh, both of them. She wants them both to kill each other. Like she's yeah, she's like die mutants die. Like, <laughs> she's having yeah. a kill yourself party. <laughs> I will say I am very disappointed that his actual head is not a dog face. I right. really wanted that. Um, I feel like it's a missed opportunity. I wanted to yeah. be a dog. <laughs> but if he had the head of a jackal, he'd sound like a jackal. And that would just that like the wooing of Storm would suddenly just become very comedic. That's that's true. I guess I could go with that. That is true. <laughs> Why haven't you come to death? Because you sound like that. No, thank you. Because you sound like death. Oh no. <laughs> Suddenly, like, imagining Storm, like, dating Wiley Coyote almost. <laughs> oh, God. That's pretty much what it'd be like. Storm is just always, like, meep, meep, lightning shit. And, like, <laughs> always getting away. Wiley Coyote has good attributes. He's very smart sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. But he always falls. He falls for the tunnel, okay? He falls right. for the tunnel. Hold on. Considering the disadvantage he is at as a predator, trying to get his hands on this roadrunner... I don't know. It's like Tom is a pretty stupid cat. Jerry's a pretty smart fucking mouse. I gotta give it up to Wiley Coyote. He might not be able to close the deal, but Wiley Coyote gets a whole lot fucking closer than I think a lot of these mutants think they're gonna get after they see the Iraqi parlor tricks. So like, I gotta give it up to Wiley Coyote. I get. I gotta give it to Wiley Coyote too. I mean, hey, yeah. he's he's real smart. It's just that that little that little fucker is just real so faster than him. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Meep meep. Uh, <laughs> and lightning shit. <laughs> lightning shit. Uh, Spe- speaking of I was gonna say speaking of lightning shit, I was definitely I was definitely like storm with this because I'm a picky ass eater and she's like the, she's like let the goddess take me before I ever eat this. I was like, yes, I'm not gonna eat unicorn. Oh my god, unicorn. I don't even I don't even eat beef. I don't even eat beef, so I'm not gonna eat unicorn. <laughs> Dude, I, love- I will stick anything in my mouth that won't kill me. So bring it on. <laughs> Wolverine just all like, hey, I'm down. Like ooh, yeah. delicious. <laughs> Uh, but he's drinking oh out of a trash God. can, so what do we expect, you know? <laughs> he just grabbed a big-ass hunk and tore in. It's like, what? Dude, <laughs> you know, damn uh, the, the whole dinner just goes back to Saturnine is doing whatever the hell she wants. She's showboating because she can. I mean, she's showing off. She's not doing it for either side. She's doing it because she can, and she wants to show off, and she's trying to woo Brian. I mean, she's just, like, the whole dinner is, is more about her than anyone else. Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Totally. Absolutely. 100%. She's like she's like you're in my house my dick is huge so bad out <laughs> so I don't know how many people here are fellow animals, but I stand Kesha way too long ago. Mm. Like when me and Kesha, we go way, way the fuck back. And I feel like Saturnine is currently living a life somewhere between dinosaur and party at a rich kid's house. (laughs) Yeah. I guess. Yeah. She she is some kind of horrible, like, and I think we've all had that friend. Right. And like, you know, we use the term friend, but like, you know, you're, 17 and they're like 36 and you know them through work and they're like no hang out with me and you're like oh okay that's cool and they're not like creepy or anything but they're like aren't I young and you're like oh okay yes (laughs) oh we're playing this game Hmm. you're totally young and then they're like I I say things like bay and I know on fleek and (laughs) I tiktok till I can't stop on the IG bump and you're just like please go back to hell right (laughs) 
right back to hell. And that's sort of where Saturnine is. She's a little bit like, yep. welcome to my palace. Here's my crystal. And also a little bit like, I'm old. Tell me I'm pretty. Aren't I pretty? Oh, seriously. <laughs> oh, that is oh. freaking tea. Ugh. She's a terrible person. She is so, like, I used to love Saturnine. Right now, this this these few episodes, these few issues we're covering right now. I'm like, what is going on, Opaluna? What are you doing? Like, why is your quarantine corny? I mean, sorry. Your quarantine horny uh, <laughs> <laughs> just affecting you so much. Come on. Um, so, the fake out at the end of issue 14. If I had to wait a whole month to see issue 15, I <laughs> would have been pissed. I would Oh, so oh where, where are you guys with that <laughs> i just i i didn't i i i, I, did, uh, I appreciate the I imagery that opened up 15 but no yeah I didn't need it. Yeah, no, I, I did love the throwback to uh, Wolverine on the crucifix on the X, but that's all. I did kind of like it was kind of cool seeing them go into um, the Sanctum Satorum and throw a fiery, bloody Doctor Strange out of his house. That was kind of that was cool. satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I'm, I love Doctor Strange, but I mean, he is kind of a dick, and it was kind of funny to see two mutants just like that. Even though we didn't kinda. see it, <laughs> I mean, it was hella funny. <laughs> He's Tony Stark with magic. Watching him get his ass kicked occasionally is very satisfying. Oh, definitely. It's very, it's very humbling for him. But yeah, I don't. This is where it started losing me. When it's like, oh, you started, you killed her, but then you didn't, and then yeah, it, I was like, mm, I don't know. We'll see where this goes. <laughs> I was struggling to understand like what Wolverine thought the outcome would be of that. Like, I mean, so, so okay. Like, it's Wolverine. <laughs> He's not a big thinker. He's like, I hope this kills shit. But it's like, what was he thinking? Like the whole competition would end and you know, the Iraqi would go away? <laughs> I guess so. I guess. Like, it's like the, the competition was like the stopgap from them just straight up invading. So like, Well, he maybe didn't... he was hoping that they could take them down there in an all-out battle. Ah. I, I also think it kind of has to do with the fact that nobody is honorable. We're meant to think perhaps that the Iraqi are like these great warriors trained in the great ways of battle. They're actually all dishonorable. They try poisoning Wolverine. Solemn is happy to cheat any way he can. Like, they really are kind of dastardly pieces of crap. And by that extension, I think everybody is just desperate not to do this, that the Iraqi are willing to cheat when they have such a power advantage is absurd. Like, why do they need to cheat? Why does Logan need to cheat? And, like, I actually hate, I call it Event Logan. There's Title Logan, and then there's Event Logan. And Title Logan would stop somebody from doing that and say, stop, no, think about what you're about to do. You don't think that she has enough magic to eviscerate you from having ever existed? Like, Title Wolverine would totally be, like, be logical. But Event Wolverine, you know, that's Age of Ultron Wolverine. He just stabs stuff. Or Mark Millar Wolverine, where he chops heads off. If it's an event... It's always big, and Logan always does things without thinking. But, like, that's the impact of New X-Men by Grant Morrison. It actually takes seeing someone he loves murdered to drive Logan to chop someone's head off. He doesn't just attack. He actually needs a reason. So this was just sort of like, all right. Uh, Yeah, it was very... Although, wait, I'll say not not all of the Iraqans are complete pieces of trash. White Sword stepped in. 
And he released uh, Doug from any further servitude towards him. So he could have locked him into a contract and he didn't. He has honor, which is... He's an honorable flavor. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, if you you choose to join him, well, then you join him. But he won't do it by dastardly means. And he said as much. Well, and I think that's part of what makes him like more interesting because like he's a general and mm-hmm. he's approaching this as a warrior and you know like he has the ability to resurrect a hundred soldiers a night mm-hmm. and charge right back into battle and like he's like no 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 we do things the honorable way <laughs> and I'm just like if, if I if it all comes down to the shade of blue I would gladly trade Daddy A for some hot damn white sword grandfather action because. Mm-hmm. He's like a good guy and his armor's pretty and he doesn't think he gets to co-opt a letter for his name. I mean, we've had a lot of apocalypse. I could do with the new apocalypse. We could we could trade up. That's fine. He's been around for so long. Right? Yes. Yeah. And and, you know, I'm I'm looking I'm looking at his outfit and I'm like, "Mm, yeah, White Sword, you got it. (laughs) Like like PS5, Xbox Series S1. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely looks like that. Please not overlook Iska's contribution to keeping Doug alive. Oh my god, yes. Open that second airway. She, you know, Iska, she doesn't need to cheat. She knows she's going to win. So Mm -hmm. she's right there to to help save Doug's life. Iska and White Sword are the two baddest, most honorable ones, which I kind of understood Iska doing that, but I did not expect White Sword to do that. I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was like, oh shit. Well, I, I think the only reason that makes sense to me is that he kind of hates the Iraqi, and so he has no reason to hate the Krakoans, honestly. Mm. True, true. Oh, he yeah. does. Yeah, absolutely. Who else thinks that War's... Like, I, I think it was perfect that War was the one who tried to poison Wolverine because it's just so, so tactical, even though she didn't really need to, because I'm sure, like, they're going to... Looks like they're going to win anyway, but, like, just the thought that she tactically thought that out, like, I thought that was it's really the good. dumbest thing ever. <laughs> Of all the people to poison, you're going to try and poison Wolverine? Uh, it's true. <laughs> like, literally, you could have literally picked from anybody else at that table to try and poison and had better results. But you picked Wolverine? <laughs> yeah, well, so I, far so far for me, war isn't seeming that smart or strategic. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly thought she would be more strategic. And she wasn't. She well, let's, let's talk this straight out up. for a second. So if you poison Wolverine with his healing factor, is he going to die and come back? Because if he's still dying, he's dying in Otherworld, which could really, mm-hmm. you know, mess him up. No, I don't think he's going to die. He's, unless she got some top level shit from Crooked Market that they can guarantee will work against his healing factor. He's the man that can't die. Like, he just fucking regenerates. That's yeah. his, that's his major power is top level regeneration so no he would have been sick they might have been able to beat him in one of the non-killing contests but i highly doubt you would have taken him out yeah i think he would have got over it pretty fast honestly i mean look at what he did when he was drunk (laughs) yeah that's true uh um i did love the little like tete-a-tete that saturnine had with brian and she's like your people didn't play fair either so fuck you (laughs) (laughs) but i could overlook it if i can get some dick Thank you, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that outfit, though, Brian's got. Oh, 
love it so oh, much. Oh yeah, I do love the new outfit. I, I want him to stay in this outfit, uh, then go back yeah. to the Captain Britain. This one's much better. Yeah, I'm I'm yeah. I'm liking the Captain Avalon outfit. It suits him well. Um, what did you guys think about? I I thought some of the comedy elements were sort of odd and out of place. Like right after, like yeah, it was cute when Apocalypse was like, "I see you did well with the children." Like, and I did what and, I could. She's like, <laughs> that one was. I love that. That part that, was really good. That was yeah. cute, but I I thought it was odd that right after Doug almost dies, Cable and Ileana just kind of go back to playing. You know, it's like almost like the weird parlor games kind of thing. Yeah, I didn't like that. I thought that was kind of out of place. I I don't. And they made Cable. I know he's baby Cable, but they made him look like twelve years old. With the, with <laughs> right. The, with the like, gee golly gosh, so. <laughs> guys! I hope I can join this fight. Okay. Right. And I'm like, I don't. I don't think this. And they made magic really. I mean, she she's kind of she kind of has like a lot of personality, so she can go goofy to serious really fast. I think, but they yeah. they've been making her like goofy throughout this whole thing, and it's kind of. But I think that was strategic. Yeah, I I honestly think that was strategic because you have these two really great minds when it comes to planning and plotting, and they both look like babies. So what's the best way to capitalize on finding out your enemy's weaknesses and throwing them off? Act like a couple of dorky ass kids <laughs> yeah i yeah. appreciate that i did also think there were times she basically looked like vanellope with a great sword <laughs> yes yes i i i totally agree but i didn't think about the throwing them off because they're acting like babies so i yeah i get a that. thousand percent with that too yeah i had not thought of that either yeah i mean either. me and rod and dante we're just being like triplets over here <laughs> no big deal we're just super cute and we're in matching outfits whatever mm-hmm. oh that'd be cute <laughs> right? you look so cute <laughs> oh my god guys Stop it. We're just so cute. <laughs> All so cute here on Krakoa getting murdered. Right. <laughs> yeah. The, oh. the, the scene where the, the glasses break and like Cable has to like lick his thumb and Apocalypse is just like, what the fuck? It's like, God damn, you guys are weak. <laughs> I love that. Apocalypse ha- is like hating so much on Cable. He's like, God, why do you suck? <laughs> well, think about it. Think about it re- yeah. Cable represented the ultimate threat to Apocalypse's existence and now it's this fucking masturbatory teenager. <laughs> anything right. And like, you know, it's really funny because I, we I've said for a long time that we lost old man cable because we got old man everyone else. We no longer need mm-hmm. old man cable. And now instead of producing alternate old mans, we just have old man Magneto, which <laughs> really works. And I think it's really a thriving character idea to have somebody else bear the brunt of old age. But that does mean that the juvenilia that now defines and describes cable holistically. This idea of the unseasoned soldier, the untrained Mm -hmm. warrior, the savior with no timeline. He is so impotent to who Cable is meant to be. And yet Apocalypse can't stop seeing the little fucking bastard that got his way every time. <laughs> right? Uh, it's, you know, like, it's interesting you say that because I kind of had a different take on this on these panels. Oh, um, and I don't I don't know if it actually means anything, but uh, Cable's left arm should be techno organic, mm-hmm. and he really shouldn't be able to prick his thumb and bleed. And that moment to me was Apocalypse going. What is like? Oh, oh, shit. If that's true, I'm about to drop my pop tart. Oh wow! <laughs> How did I not wow. catch that? Oh my god! Fuck me in the head. That's amazing. 
Thank you so much, Dante. I did not. I mean, it could just be an editorial mistake, but if it's not, like, if not, Dante says double down. (laughs) He's always had to use TK. He's always had to use his telekinesis to keep it under control. If if he doesn't keep the techno organic virus under control, his whole Mm -hmm. body will turn into it. So yeah. He gets real ugly. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, yeah, they did that in that high evolutionary arc where they showed him, yep. like, yeah. Like a giant box. Yup. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but yeah, yeah, Babel is, I'm wondering where <laughs> Babel is in the time. Ah, <laughs> oh, that is such a fitting name. <laughs> Oh my god, you've never heard Babel? Like I I'll uh, I that. thought it. I've just never heard anybody else say it because I'm going, this is really dorky. I know I'm thinking it, but oh god, somebody else said it. Fine. It is funny. Thank you. <laughs> oh yeah, the internet is all over that one. Oh yeah, it. that or or Wi-Fi. I love Wi-Fi. Oh, Wi-Fi. I love that. Those um, are both hilarious names. <laughs> I am wondering where exactly in his timeline he is. Is this right after the adventures of the what you just read, Nico? Do you think, or like a little after, or what? Do you guys have any ideas where he would be? It's really hard to gauge because uh, you know one of the things that we talk about extensively, and definitely if you guys want to hear that, it's in the last episode, and actually I think the second half of it runs this episode. Uh, we talk about how the Iskani timeline can't exist anymore. Yep. So. Because that apocalypse is an old man that wears giant apocalypse suits. <laughs> so, like, that apocalypse isn't a person anymore. So, that future isn't our present. This right. present doesn't lead to that future. So, it's really hard to know if this is even actually a Scani cable with the multitude oh. of multiversity for mm. us to mutate and multi. <laughs> I ran out of yeah. M words, so I just kept looking this down. <laughs> yeah, that's like trying to figure out Rachel Rachel Summers Grace timeline with that table oh, thing God. where oh timey wimey bullshit. I don't like that. <laughs> Wibbly wobbly timey wimey. And I, this has nothing to do with anything, but I just need to say it because I don't say it enough on this show. I really wish that the reason Rachel is a hound is because Logan was secretly her dad. That's just me. Oh my god. Oh my god. It'd be like Jean and and um Wolverine's child. That'd be cool. Or and that's like, why Scott had so much trouble accepting her at first. And why she's always they did, they, they did hint at that sort of in the days of future tense because yeah. they had, they had uh, Sue could find Franklin, but uh, Scott could not find Rachel. So, oh. so they hinted at something not being normal, like what it was. So like what we think uh. it is. Ain't nothing but a hound dog. <laughs> Murdering all your friends. <laughs> I mean, they both have done it, so. Yeah. I, you know, that does kind of lead to one thing that, like, you know how Wolverine's like, hey, Brian, just, you know, give her the fucking sausage. What does it matter? I've been married before to do it all the time. <laughs> like, Wolverine obviously views love differently than Brian and the rest of them, especially Brian now that Megan come back from hell, I think. Uh, he's, like, super devoted to her, whereas before he would have been like, ooh, it's Courtney Ross, let me go fuck her. But now he's like, ooh, Megan, I love you. Like When your what? wife can claw her way out of hell, you're pretty much have no assurance that if she dies, she won't come back and whoop your ass. <laughs> right? Oh my god. And if uh, anybody, she could whoop his ass. I, I, I hope we see Megan soon and their new baby. The baby that's super smarter than all of them. I need to see them soon. <laughs> I been away love for too Maggie. Long. Oh my god, Maggie and Megan really need to show up on this. Um, oh my god, I miss, I miss old school Excalibur with Megan. Oh. Mm-hmm. 
I'm just gonna sit here stroking my Muir Island feelings. <laughs> <laughs> there was a little like blurb right at the beginning of the issue where they're like, uh, you know, even Moira, like you know, in the weird alternate Saturnine got killed reality, where they're like, even Moira in her no place was, uh, you know, her higher brain functions were erased. So that makes me wonder, like, so I guess maybe she can be uh, mind dead, but not be dead and not reset. Like, that's just an interesting implication. I don't know what you guys think about that. Hmm. I mean, there's, but like, what could really do that becomes the question. That's, yeah. that's, you got to take a lot of power <laughs> to, to be able to like wipe literally everything in the universe, including basically a pocket universe. Yeah, I think it was something that we haven't seen yet that that could do that. So maybe we'll see that later? I don't know. So I'm going to point out two things that are very central to Opal Luna Saturnine's backstory, right? Number one, the Great Push. She has the ability to push a universe forward. forward. It's called the Great Push, and it's this mystical thing that either evolves them or leads them to their destruction, but pretty fucking fast. And the result of a push gave birth to my all-time favorite Marvel supervillain, The Fury. The Fury is an unstoppable killer, and The Fury is actually the only creature, in my opinion, as strong as The Fury in all of existence is Mad Jim Jaspers at his craziest. Oh, yeah. And mm. I think unless it's the two of them, no matter who's trying... I mean, Jamie. I would put Jamie in that category. But, like, part of why I'm so bothered by Saturnine's performance in these couple of issues is because, like, she has reality-altering power. And mm-hmm. she is so willing to wield it. Why is she backseating this into some sort of game? The summoner I get. The summoner loves games. The summoner is like, who wants to play Catan? But <laughs> I don't understand it coming from Saturnine, who is like Lord High Omniversal Majestrix party at my house. Because if if Brian is her end game, she wants to win him over. She wants him to come to her if she just makes shit happen the way she wants it she knows it's not the real thing i i think it's more i think it's more bigger game than that yes she wants brian but i think she wants him to become the captain for again i think he wants him to be the head of it to to like big universal things yes she she wants to hop on top but like she really wants to have him back as captain Mm -hmm. but yes i mean well think about it with the sword since i mean i know we're not on issue yet but like betsy got shattered that that sword was meant for brian brian was meant to get shattered and with those shattered with those shards i bet um they're gonna make individual you know captain britons and make the captain britain corpse again like i think that's what it's gonna be and she wanted to give that to brian so she could probably control him again and have him be the leader of the duplicates of self so she could have an army again to protect her you know own little universe mm-hmm. oh yeah I will, I will definitely get behind that theory uh, first, I need to say that I never want to play uh, Settlers of Catan with Summoner. <laughs> <laughs> because I never want to hear him say that he has wood for sheep. Um, oh, no. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, no. But uh, everyone is saying, it uh, leads me back to that tarot card that Betsy received, the Nine of Swords. And Raven, when you talked about how it could be swords coming out of her, like, mm-hmm. I can't let go of that idea that something about Betsy or what happens to Betsy is going to end up being the recreation of the uh, Captain Britain Corps. Yes. Yay! But that. And not to jump ahead, but now there's even a shattered sword. So. Ooh. Well, yeah. A shattered amulet, a shattered sword, and a shattered person. So 
you literally have everything you need to spread a little Captain Britain rain all over reality. Sorry, not to jump ahead, but like Captain Britain right. is my shit. Yeah. <laughs> my, my blood, re- my like my blood, my 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 spit, my tears. They're all Brian flavored. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. They gotta be, be Betsy flavored uh, now. Better, better, better. Watch out, Nico. Saturday night might be after you with that. <laughs> well, you know what? You know what? She can try, but I'm setting I'm setting her on block. She cannot get to me on plenty of fish. She cannot message me on. You know, she's one of those crazy straight women that has a scruff account. Oh yeah, right. Oh, oh she's got a grinder right. account. What are you talking about? Scruff oh, <laughs> grinder. Nico, Brian is married. Brian is married. He has Megan. You need to He's married down. to Pete Wisdom. Oh my god. Ah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a thruple. It's 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 you know they're good. It's they're fine. Good. It's fine. It's fine. Ah, <laughs> right? uh, Pete Wisdom. He's so. Uh, but why is he after? Oh, and he's after his sister now. Oh, well, That's good weird. because that family got real incestuous a couple of issues ago. <laughs> I like Saturnine is just like Brian. Fuck me, and he's like, I only fuck my sister. Like it is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wild. I want to come back to uh, just after, you know, all the Babel and magic and Iska shenanigans, the conversation that happens between death and Red Root, I think oh, yes. is really yeah. just just really insightful because you're kind of getting both sides of the conversation where death is like, you know, these Krakoans are weak and Red Root is recognizing that like Krakoans grew up in a different way and what could have been the destiny for Orako mm-hmm. and Okara. And I think that Red Root is really seeing that, you know, know the we kind of what we talked about before with the parallels of the two islands what could have been and maybe what life could be mm-hmm. i think yeah i think it's a really great little conversation that they have oh that's part of why i love red root so much because she's able to see just that whole facet of it she's able to see that like hey you know these guys just grew up differently that's why they're like that mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah i mean i feel like that's basically what um, a conversation me and raven had on one of the podcasts before one of the episodes before uh because i feel like once some of these Iraqans poly survive and come to Krakoa once Exoswords is done and everything, we're going to see them enter a new plane of existence that's totally opposite of what they're used to. Being able mm-hmm. to relax, actually socialize, be friendly with each other. We're probably going to see some of them on a hammock and drink, drinking some like Krakoan Kool-Aid or something. Just, like Something they've never done before. They're like, oh, this is so weird, but I kind of like it. Bay <laughs> <laughs> moves in to the sex tent. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, <definitely. laughs> I would like to point out that I too would move into whatever sex tent Bay moved into. Yes, I'll set up a little pop tent upside if I have to. Jeez. Something would pop up. Always mm-hmm. open, open 24 oh 7. Oh, <laughs> welcome. Oh, she's going to rock little Dougie. <laughs> Uh, and then you just got Pog, your Pog, over there in the corner, oh just towering over everybody. Oh, Giant, he just watches. He's dragon. I'm like, oh, I don't think he can't. He can't go to. He can't go to Krakoa. He's not a mutant. Uh, I mean, come on. It's true. He is not. You're right. Mm. That brings us to the last page where Saturnine draws the cards. Betsy versus Iska. Oh. Surprise, surprise. Dun, dun, in a dun, battle dun. to the death. And right then, I knew Betsy was going to die. Oh, <laughs> Betsy's there just like, oh, like the look on her eyes. She's like, oh, shit. Like, I fucked up. Uh, I fucked up bad. 